0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant prepared meal kits to your door. Learn more at Misenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N Box.co.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are exploring how indigenous people are decolonizing diets across the Midwest. Food sovereignty is often mentioned as a movement contributing to these efforts. Food sovereignty is defined as the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods, and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. These principles seem so basic and intuitive. One may assume that all communities benefit from this kind of food system. But as we will hear from our guests today, that is far from the truth, particularly in some communities. We will hear from Elena Terry of the Ho-Chunk Nation, who tells us why she founded Wild Berries, that's B-E-A-R-I-E-S, an organization that educates indigenous youth about the community's traditional foodways to both preserve culture and empower the next generation. But first, we welcome Daniel Grooms, business manager of the Red Cliff Fish Company, a business run by and for the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, in wisconsin daniel thank you for joining the program we're happy to have you uh on from wisconsin and um talking about your business as the business manager of the red cliff fish company there introduce us to what you do on a daily basis at, at at the fish
3: company there glad to be here thanks for having me um yeah, no, here I am the business manager here. So my main job is to kind of provide an outlet for the fish that we are purchasing and processing. So I, I meet with restaurants, um, different programs that provide uh, fish products to other reservations. And then mainly handling kind of our financial invoicing, our bills, and things like that, and our QuickBooks. So that's the main my main job. Um, but lately I've been all, all on the processing floor, also kind of like learning how everything works, the whole process from taking the fish in to basically the product that in turn that I sell. So I get to get hands-on training, and you know, it definitely helps me be more um proactive and more detailed in my uh, sales pitch.
2: We can start to see a day uh, sort of in your shoes day-to-day doing this job, uh, but it's always good to get a little context. And uh, you are a Lake Superior Chippewa, and um, part of the, I guess, motivation behind establishing the Red Cliff Fish Company was to help engage and feed your fellow uh, at Lake Superior Chippewa. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. Tell me about that. Tell me about um, what inspired starting this business.
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, in this area in particular, uh, we're we're fortunate to be right on one of the biggest lakes uh, in the world, on Lake Superior here, and the natives in this community, you know, hunting and gathering is kind of our our biggest you know form of tradition and um, some of our heritage and culture. And for a while there. Um, We were kind of restricted to inland rivers and lakes, but Redcliffe being a tribe that's mainly coastline, Mm -hmm. you know, we have the lake. You know, we don't really have a lot of inland areas where we can catch fish. So the whole process kind of started, we had people uh, in the area who wanted to fish, commercial fishermen in particular, there are tribal members. And for them to be able to go out and and harvest something that our, our people here have been doing for forever. You know, it was kind of a fight for that, right? So the whole process kind of started with, yes, definitely that. Um, It was also to, you know, take care of our fishermen. Um, Mm -hmm. The other fishing companies in the area, there was definitely competition and um, some unfair treatment. So uh, we really wanted to make sure that they had a place where, one, they could uh, bring their fish and get a fair wage, but as well, again, be able to fish these local waters and have a place to dock as well. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the main focus in the beginning of the whole project. And then it quickly turned into the potential this place has, Um, being able to provide healthier alternatives to our our tribe itself, mainly with the younger generation to kind of introduce them to a healthier eating lifestyle. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And then also um, to provide a healthier alternative as well as a, a fresh wild caught Lake Superior product.
2: And, and what are those, those fish that you catch?
3: Predominantly, we do whitefish, Lake Superior whitefish and uh, lake trout are kind of our big ones for the summer. Towards the end, and depending on the season, we'll have walleye, herring, uh, we'll do, we do get some burbot here and there, and then we also get uh, chubs, I believe Cisco and some bloater chubs. So mm-hmm. a little bit smaller fish, similar to a herring, but those are kind of our, our main fish that we collect here.
2: So, in in talking to um, other individuals in the uh, Native American and Indigenous communities, I've, I've um, discussed the issue of food sovereignty uh, relatively often, and um, I'm curious to know sort of your view on, um, you know, Red Cliff's uh, role potentially in food sovereignty for the Lake Superior Chippewa community and and in the other communities that you serve. Either with you know providing them with fish, fish products, or with helping provide that access point to um, being able to fish the the waters and and earn a fair wage, as you said.
3: Yeah, so definitely. Um, well yeah, with the food sovereignty, again, the big thing was there to um, allow for an opportunity for the fishermen in the area, which kind of our big step. Um, but then again, so that helps out a lot of. We have about fifteen uh, or more Red Cliff. Uh, licensed commercial fishermen Mm. and so they all have an opportunity so that supports themselves and a lot of the community members most boats have a a pretty good sized crew depending especially the time of year and then also it helps support their families which is it's a great kind of economic little boost for our our small tribe here but when it comes to you know food in itself with the fish products that we do offer like i said you know we are providing a, a healthier alternative which is kind of our, our huge thing there, but also the programs we are now entering for tribes that are within the area—Wisconsin, Michigan, um, and even some you know potential in Minnesota—that don't have the option for mm-hmm. fish of this you know quality or this type of fish. Um, now we're providing that to them as well. Right. And so in turn, you know, we're working with organizations for food boxes. So we're collecting wow. food from other tribes that maybe they harvest and they're able to do, um, and we're kind of filling in the gaps with, with fish.
2: Can you describe to me what a food box may look like, what it might entail, or uh, and, and who it would go to?
3: Yeah. So food boxes, primarily the programs that we're entered in now, are, are predominantly for the elderly in the community. Um, we're usually age 55 and up. Mm-hmm. Um, so within each box that we are participating in, uh, they will get, um, about a pound and a half or, or a little bit more of fish, frozen fish fillets from us. Uh, but other tribes will donate, um, you know, produce, uh, you see, you know, lettuce, carrots, potatoes. Uh, we even have elk venison wow. um, that's been, you know, uh, offered up in this program, um, so mainly those types of things, um, and then also you know recipes to try out for cooking. While wild rice is another big one.
2: Oh yes, I've, 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 wild rice is such an important component. I know, in,
3: particularly in places like Minnesota. Um, yes. It's just such a such an important component of, of the diet. Absolutely, and then for us here, it's not that we don't have it, uh, but again, with the lake being here, um, you know, you don't have a lot of wild or you don't have any wild rice growing on the lake. Right, Superior, um, I should say. So we definitely are working, you know, in a, in a partnership to really kind of, you know, uh, provide, you know, again healthier alternatives to our elders, and then also again, yeah, back to the community is kind of our, our big step. That's huge, and
2: and you know, I'm glad that you have mentioned, you know, a number of times this idea of healthy alternatives, and and maybe for those that might not be as aware of um, some of the challenges that exist in uh, on reservations and and in Native American communities with nutritional access um, maybe you can provide some insight into you know why it's so important to have those healthy alternatives available
3: well I think you know just in general um, you know growing up here in the reservation uh, you know folks get used to you know basically what's convenient um, what's fast and easier to prepare um, you know you know people do work you know very hard just like anywhere um, and again, sometimes making dinner, Um, Except even myself, sometimes it gets tough to make dinner, but um, to have that opportunity, it's not just providing the healthy product, but, um, you know, we do um, workshops and things to show folks the breaking down of the fish, what parts can be used for, you know, what type of cooking, um, how to prepare it in in itself, and then also some of the, the nutritional facts and how it can benefit you in the long run how do you get that message out there? I mean, how how do you do
2: those trainings? I mean, um, to be able to get that message to, you know, the community at large so they know. Um, I mean, I know in some communities, for example, um, not necessarily indigenous communities, but just, you know, um, in my experience, um, in my role when, when I was, um, training as a social worker and we would do a lot with like diabetes education stuff, um, trying to help folks manage their, their diabetes. And so we would, you know, partner up with folks to do diabetes education. And, um, we would have these farmer's market market boxes and help people sort of connect the dots between the, how to prepare these different ingredients they may not be familiar with, how to, you know, prepare them, and then, you know, why it's valuable to managing their diabetes. And that, when you're, when you're telling me this, is kind of what I'm thinking
3: in my head. No, yeah, absolutely. I said mainly for us, we're providing our product, we have all our information. Um, for us in particular, we've been approached for coming out to these camps, these language programs. Um, I know we have one coming up, I think, a wolf camp for the youth. Oh, wow. Those we are actually asked to do a presentation based on, you know, types of fish that we carry, benefits to you know overall and then we do kind of like a filleting type of uh, demonstration Mm -hmm. Um, so usually our operations manager will um, usually take that uh, that task on and he'll get out there and and he'll even cook it so a lot of even the community members that uh, get our fish that are running these camps even though we're not there, are able to again pass that along as well uh, so it's kind of the community in itself working yeah. together to get that information out there and the benefits I mean we're doing a good amount of fish uh, for those programs and communities that uh, it's their main main meat that they're they're doing so it's uh, very abundant One of the things I wanted
2: to bring up before I forget about it because it's very important but I remember in looking at the information um, that was available on your on the website and there was a lot of uh, references and and discussion about basically kind of being stewards of the water and the approach to fishing and, um, you know, the approach to, you know, respecting the land and, and, you know, that being um, part of, you know, the traditions of indigenous peoples and, and the Lake Superior Chippewa. I'd like to hear more about how those traditions have, you know, informed or impacted the way that you fish and maybe even the way that you end up preparing, whether it's filleting or, or cooking, um, you know, the, the the bounty that you do get.
3: Yeah, so you know, in the stewardship um with our with our fishermen and and it's been great to be able to meet them. I've been here the last two and a half months or so. Um it's been great to kind of, you know, get to know them in general, but to kind of learn their process, learn the industry. Um, a lot of them, you know, with with um Redcliffe and the council as well as um our other agencies within here, um, you know, the fishermen work very well with not overfishing. Um, they usually Mm -hmm. run about a certain, certain yardage, uh, for netting. They can do kind of in a season or they're allotted a certain amount of tags for trout. Um, basically this is kind of just making sure that, uh, you know, we're balancing things out. You know, we don't want to, you know, run the fish out of the water basically. And, um, so, that's kind of one of our, one of a I guess you could say safety measure in itself, but working with the fishery here is also kind of part of, we're part of their department. Um, and, and they, what they're doing is they're raising fish that can be, you know, uh, released back into lake to increase the numbers. So it's kind of like balancing it out. So that way, um, you know, we always have a supply. Sure. Uh, so, so that's yeah. You know, that, again, that's pretty huge there. And so far, and even just with my little knowledge coming into this, um, it has been great being able to see that you know the the working relationship between kind of you know a personal business like a commercial fisherman and an entire community.
2: How do you see uh, Red Cliff Fish um, and its mission evolving to help you know uh, serve and empower uh, the Lake Superior Chippewa and neighboring reservations.
3: Yeah, well, the big thing is, is um, even just with, you know, passing down kind of like a traditional aspect This is, kind of one of, um, you know, something our people have been doing here for forever. And it's, you know, not just, again, a lot of the fishermen are getting older, but they're passing that knowledge down to um, the next generation and the importance of um, what they're doing and how it provides not only for their families, uh, you know, a financial standpoint, but at how the work that they're doing can benefit a group of people, you know. Um, and even with us here, you know, we're working with a lot of youth, um, you know, just passing down. And again, yes, we're processing. It's a slightly different part of it, but it is an essential part. And it's, you know, why we're breaking down what components can be used um, of the fish and how to kind of prepare it for, you know, for the masses. So it's a little bit different for us but we're still able to pass down that knowledge as well so i think in the long run with you know the younger generation slowly taking over um, they see the kind of the importance of the whole process and uh, again how how can really benefit the people here their families but then in turn to all of our our customers Mm visiting and, you know, uh, restaurants, wholesale, that type of
2: deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, you, you have to play, it's every single aspect, every single piece of the puzzle is incredibly important. Um, And before I let you go, I have to ask you one more question, which is a little bit off the wall, but this is a food show. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's my understanding that you're not only Lake Superior Chippewa, but your mom uh, has a Hispanic heritage. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. So because it's a food show, I have to ask, um, did you grow up with any kind of unique food traditions that brought those two uh, cultural uh, food traditions together in a a unique way that you remember or that you still do today? Well, combining
3: them, uh, yeah, I would say so. Dinner-wise, you you know, we may have some type of components from each type of, you know, background. Um, My mom mainly did a good amount of cooking. My dad's more of hey, if I'm cooking, I'll make some pizza kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> right. yeah, the typical. Um, but uh, no, growing up, um, my mom was very involved with us, my younger brother and I, um, in in preparing mainly um, you know Mexican cuisine, you know, enchiladas, um, Spanish rice, and um, you know homemade tortillas, which are phenomenal. Which, oh yeah. Uh, Corn tortillas, definitely corn tortillas as well. <laughs> so yeah, I've also been part of preparing that for the family. Um, so we've kind of incorporated yeah a little bit of there some wild rice you know mixed in to kind of you know change up the recipe a little. Mm-hmm. And we do have those traditions. I know uh, every winter, uh, my mom and I usually make. Um, I think she calls it pan de polvo. It's a kind of a Spanish sugar cookie. Mm. And it's just a recipe that uh, she was passed on from from her mom and uh, her mom before that. So uh, it's kind of a tradition. And since she had no girls, um, you know, I'm kind of taking over that. And that's something that's now passed down to me. So... Um, you know when my wife and I decide to start a fan miss and we can continue to pass pass along.
2: I love it. This is what I always have to ask, you know, about when i when I know that there's you know maybe an heirloom recipe out there or a family tradition that's interesting, I gotta ask about it because recipes tell stories and they preserve and they preserve history. So while that was not the purpose of this conversation, I'm glad that I learned about it. and um, I know that our listeners, I'm sure are as well um because you know, it, to me at least, telling the story of the Midwest, and that's what this show is all about, is showing that, you know, rich diversity of of culture, um, of heritage, of land, of resources. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, you know, our building blocks of of, the, of our story um, in this region and this whole continent starts with our Native American and, and Indigenous neighbors. So I had to, I, I'm always excited to, um, do my best to help others tell that story so um daniel thank you very much for joining us today uh it really uh, was a pleasure
3: and maybe we'll have you on again sometime absolutely again thanks so much for the opportunity and taking the time and to to me you know speak with me so again uh, thanks so much and uh you know happy to happy to help
2: absolutely we have great respect for what you're doing out there in wisconsin thanks again thank you I'm Capri Cafaro. You're listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. We will be right back after this break with Elena Terry, founder of Wildberries.
1: This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant-prepared meal kits to your door and enabling anyone to be the hero of their kitchen. You can book fun and lively virtual cooking sessions featuring restaurant chefs who guide the group through the preparation of their home-delivered meal kit. They're always looking for new restaurant partners. If you're a restaurant, a food truck operator, or a catering food brand looking for an additional line of revenue, Misenbox can help get you into the meal kit space in a matter of days. If you are an eater, recommend your favorite restaurant and Misenbox will take care of the rest. Learn more at misenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N
2: Box.co. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We're now joined by Elena Terry, a member of the Ho Chunk Nation, executive chef, and founder of Wild Berries. Elena, thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I, first, I, I want uh, you to take an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners about uh, the Ho Chunk uh, tribe. So the Ho-Chunk Nation is located in Wisconsin. I specifically
4: am in South Central Wisconsin, but we're throughout the entire state and we are a non-reservation tribe. So uh, we actually have trust lands throughout, uh, from Northern Wisconsin down to Milwaukee.
2: And I find this interesting because I, you know, I was not familiar with the Ho Chunk Nation prior to our conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, it is a, as you mentioned, uh, without land, but uh, is, I guess, uh, related to um, a tribe that does have land in, in another part of the country, I guess, originally. But the Ho Chunk Nation was, is different because they were the group that would continue to go back to Wisconsin. Is that right?
4: Yes. So the reservation actually came from a divide that happened within the tribe when we were moved to Nebraska, uh, Winnebago, Nebraska. And Mm. so there is part of the tribe originally that stayed down there and they have a reservation, but the Ho-Chunk are the ones that always return back to Wisconsin. And that's why we don't have a reservation here. And now we are recognized as two separate
2: tribes. I see. So uh, the individuals that identify as being part of uh, the uh, ho Chunk tribe uh, live within, you know, the, the greater communities throughout uh, the, that region in Wisconsin, right? Yes.
4: And beyond. We do have tribal members that live throughout sure. the country, but I'm this sure. is our
2: largest populated area it's in the state of Wisconsin, yes this is the wonderful thing about doing a show like this. You learn something new every day, having conversations with with people like yourself. And we try to bring these these kind of, uh, you know, this kind of information and knowledge to to our listenership. Um, so, you know, obviously we, we are a show about food um, and um, you have a, a pretty extensive and interesting background uh, when it comes to the indigenous food sovereignty movement, um, which, you know, I think both predates uh, as well as kind of, runs in parallel to your work with Wildberry. So I want to talk first about your your work in the Indigenous food sovereignty movement.
4: Of course. So I am the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance's Food and Culinary Program Coordinator, uh, which means basically that I run the International Chef Mentorship Program, which Mm -hmm. has over 120 Indigenous chefs of all skill sets in the program, and it really is about building a stronger community there and uh, sharing education and knowledge and uh, really being a support group. But I also work in partnership with the Intertribal Agriculture Council and the American Indian Foods Program
3: mm-hmm.
4: in promoting indigenous production and uh, really supporting economically our indigenous producers, uh, being in the position of a chef and being able to have selection and choices and what we choose to use as product, we always try and go with our indigenous uh, suppliers initially. So I do a lot of collaboration with those programs as well Mm -hmm. as uh, in the Madison area. I do a lot with the mobile farmers market and with uh, growing out certain ingredients. So that's one of the amazing things that I get to do is kind of work with farms and growers and uh, people in agriculture to get, our ingredients grown on a better scale.
2: Well, speaking of growing ingredients, uh, you introduced me to a term, uh, seed to kitchen. Now, most of us hear about farm to table, but seed to kitchen is, is a little bit more granular, literally and figuratively. What, is that, what does that mean to you, seed to kitchen? And why is that relevant to uh, the indigenous food sovereignty movement? Well,
4: seed to kitchen is the only way we really can exist and maintain the integrity of our ingredients. So every year I you know meticulously harvest the seeds from the the product that gets given to us and really take care of those seeds as, as a seed saver and um, it's it's a necessary part of my job because the seeds that we work with are ancestral seeds and they mm. are hundreds of years old and they've been grown by tribes and maintain their integrity over centuries. So we really have to do our part in making sure that, those seeds that grow out our very specific product are grown in an environment where they will thrive, where they won't be Mm cross-pollinated, and um, that their seed will have enough for the next year's grow. So Seed to Kitchen is the only way that we really can exist and have existed uh, for centuries in being able to maintain our ingredients in the levels that they do. And they really do have some incredible characteristics that Some cultivated uh, varieties of their species don't. So we want to make sure that that continues on in a responsible
2: and a sustainable way. Can you give me some examples of of some of those unique characteristics? Some of the seeds may
4: have, like the corn might have a higher protein content than others. Mm -hmm. Or if you dry it in particular ways, even... Uh, in processing. I mean, it's a very scientific method to process corn and nixtamalization, but there are ways that you can draw out some of those more uh, higher nutritious properties, even as far as uh, vitamin content when you nixtamalize the corn.
2: Wow. Outside of corn, are there other seed varieties that you focus on or that that you, you know, have more of as, as you are going through as a, uh, I think you called yourself a, a seed saver or a seed keeper uh, as you catalog these seeds?
4: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I actually am known for my love of squash.
2: <laughs> I love me some squash. I may have to come and uh, check check out your your uh, wares there.
4: It's one of my favorites because it can be sweet or savory. It can reconstitute well, and it's so high in vitamins. So, I save a lot of my squash seeds to make sure that uh, I will have those grown out for me and in the way that I want them. So, there's certain varieties that I prefer to cook with and to preserve for the long term. So I definitely am a a seed saver for squash. And uh, the three sisters, really, the corn, bean, and squash that grow perfectly together and really have all these stories of connecting to our ancestors and Mm -hmm. the reason that we were cultivators, uh, I love growing out all of those. And so I keep the beans, the uh, squash, and the corn seeds always. But there are some others. Including some wild plants that we just kind of spread out when, when we get them or find them in the seed stage to make sure that they'll be able to thrive as well.
2: Well, you mentioned uh, you know connection, connection to your your heritage to and connection to the land, and uh, I I have a sense that um, that was one of the reasons why you founded Wild Berries. Um, what made you start Wild Berries? Where where was the motivation? Uh, and and how did how did this come to be? So wild berries really
4: came it it manifested itself, and I've been lucky enough to be along for the ride. It really is a way that our mission is to reintroduce people to the community or bring them back to the community who have suffered a disconnect through alcohol and other drug abuse issues or emotional trauma, which I think mm. is universal enough that everybody can relate to it in some way. Sure. But it really kind of opens the door to get people uh, who might have felt that disconnection from our community for whatever reason back uh, into the kitchen, into our community, in a way where they can be proud of what we produce, in a way that will be non-judgmental. And as long as you're willing to put in the work, uh, you you can participate. Really, when it it comes to mentorship and what Wild Berries hopes to do with just promoting self-esteem and Mm -hmm. community around food and food sovereignty, it's to have people be proud again to relate and to have that connection. And what better way to do that than through sharing a meal, through preparing a meal, or even through supporting uh, those who find a passion in that. So we have Wild Berries now that have kind of broken da- off into garden berries, and they have become seed savers in their own sense and have become cultivators and are growing, and, and that's where they feel the connection. But they are still part of mm-hmm. the Wild Berries team. So it's really is become a holistic approach to food sovereignty in our communities and just mm-hmm. building a stronger community around those uh, incredible foods that we have.
2: Planting a seed literally and figuratively. Uh, I know that there are a number of different type of programs that you have under this umbrella that you just kind of described in these, um, you know, general but, but powerful terms. You mentioned mentorship. Uh, I know that, you know, food preparation, catering and those, those type of things are also involved. Um, what kind of specific programs um, does Wildberries lead? Uh, walk us through maybe a you know a, a traditional day of someone that might be in a mentorship program, um, at, you know, or or uh, you know at the farmers market or, or doing food preparation and that sort of thing.
4: So Wildberries does do catering, and one of the things that we focus on is community education and really recognizing that we're part of this larger, beautiful community. And uh, as long as things are done responsibly and knowledge is shared in a good way with people who will respect that knowledge, that's what we really try to do. And it's not just incorporating our participants in the indigenous community or the Ho-Chunk community, but in our greater communities. And so we have been able to take some of the wild berries off and really represent what it is we're working towards in places like... um, the Overture Center in Madison in support of gallery openings. We have done Taste of Madison several years in a row. Uh, We also have done Femstival in Madison, which was the first ever last year, and it was a, a wonderful thing to participate in and just to support our greater community. And we even have gone and done the homegrown stand at Farm Aid in support of agriculture and really trying to make sure that we take a strong stance behind those who provide our food. Wow. So yeah, uh, some of it is kitchen time. Some of it is community outreach time that we Mm -hmm. spend and a lot more of it is conversation and really just being able to break down those barriers that sometimes we put up ourselves. And uh, the reason I wanted to do wild berries is because I've felt it at times. And, and there have been times when I've thought, you know, oh, how do, how do I get back from this? And the wonderful way to do it is through sharing meals and really taking pride in, in that preparation. And if your role was to grow the ingredients or to prepare the ingredients, we all have a place in that food system and getting that meal. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that Wild Berries has to offer is that it is relatable to, to anybody whose interests might not be specifically in culinary skills, but really in being a part of something bigger.
2: One thing that really struck me again from, from our initial conversation is uh, about um, the role that feelings and emotion have in food preparation. And you shared with me some really interesting insights uh, from your perspective that I'd like you to share with our listeners. Um, tell us how you feel about feelings and emotions and how they impact the food preparation
4: one of our rules not just with wild berries but just culturally is that you're not supposed to be in the kitchen if you don't have a good mindset if you have those bad feelings that goes into your food and so my kitchen definitely is not the the kitchen where you see a chef yelling around it's it's got order in it for sure because i am a chef and i need that <laughs> But it also is a requirement that you do come in in the proper frame of mind and that you are open and that you have those wonderful feelings because food is medicine and there's so much more to it than just eating mindlessly. It's the healing that happens in preparation and cultivation and and in consumption. And when you want to feed people that medicine and really nourish their bodies, you want to do it in a good way like the intentions and the feelings that you have definitely come out in your food. Mm. And so um, I, I think that it's an aspect that isn't highly talked about so much, but it's almost hard to ignore when you are cooking with food, like ingredients that, you know, came from a grandfather and his grandsons that went racing, or, you know, that, you know, this squash was grown and talked to and, you know, it, when it was weeded, there was music playing, those kinds of things oh. are also part of bringing it to to the table. So it's honoring sure. all of that intention that went into getting that meal. and And as a chef, your responsibility is like to really represent those ingredients in the way that they are going to shine and be appreciated in every bite. And I think that the key ingredient is really love and and good intention
2: that's uh, just what a what a beautiful sentiment and and uh you know i wish that everyone had this kind of approach to food and to community and uh i i certainly will take more of a mindful approach in my own kitchen um when thinking about preparation and and, and that intention of um thinking about you know our uh, where food comes from the supply chain not all of us have that um you know deep connection to the land um, but we also need to honor you know, where our food does come from and, and to take that time and to have that space and uh, definitely a, a lesson that we can all apply in our daily lives. Um, it's just been a pleasure to, to speak with you, uh, Elena, and, and you know, hear about your mission and Wild Berries. So thank you for sharing uh, your story with, with our audience. Eat your heartland out